Welcome to today's episode of Diversity and Inclusion, Revolution or Reform, where we talk all things DNI to ask whether DNI can save us, get us free, or move us towards collective liberation. I'm Connie. And I'm David. Each week on this podcast, we'll get into whether DNI is revolution or reform with guests who are DNI practitioners, activists, organizers, or academics and researchers in the field. We talk strategy, mindsets, growth, learnings, and mistakes, and even some juicy DNI confessions. Because at the end of each day, we're all humans just trying to do our best. All right, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of DNI Revolution or Reform. We're so excited to have Pharaoh Bolding joining us in conversation today. Pharaoh is the self-proclaimed world's greatest comic drawing HR professional, ready and willing to defend his title in a moment's notice. Too bad this is an audio medium. <laughs> uh, by day, Pharaoh kicks butt in HR, focusing on equity, diversity, and inclusion. And by later in the day, he makes comics, draw, watches wrestling, and kicks pop culture butt. And there is so much that we want to get into with him. Pharaoh and I connected a couple weeks back in a workshop with Resma Menekem talking about somatic abolitionism and we really connected on this feeling of racial battle fatigue as black men doing this work. Uh, since then, Pharaoh has moved on from where he was last employed um, and is currently doing this work independently. And so we're really excited to get into all the nitty gritty of doing this work in HR and what Pharaoh's wrestling with and whether this work can really be transformative in the constraints of HR. But uh, Pharaoh, welcome. So glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the time and I appreciate uh, the energy that I filled this space that we're going to be into today. I really appreciate it. Welcome, welcome. And there will be lots of energy we are <laughs> going to have on this conversation today. We always start by asking our guests uh, to share a little bit about the lineage of your work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you can kind of take that in any direction you want, as expensive as you want, or as little as you want, really, whatever you feel called to. Yeah. So for me, I, I went back to college in my late 20s after about a 10, 11 year layoff. And for me, it was about finding something that resonated with me, something that I felt like I could put my life into. Because I, I had, I mean, this is probably my 10th career at this point. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've done a little bit of everything, but I went to school originally to get a degree in marketing a few years back, well, a little over a decade ago now at this point. And when I got into the school of business, one of the first things they have you do is take the intro to classes, intro to marketing, intro to HR, intro to management, et cetera, et cetera. So I took the intro to HR class, like took the first class. And right after the first class, it was like, this is it. Because I realized that all I'd been doing my whole life and every career I've had was vouching for people and fighting for people. Even when I didn't have power and positionality, I was fighting for people because, you know, I, I come from very humble beginnings. Like I, I grew up Poe. We didn't have an OR. It was, it was Poe. And, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit in the 80s when it was the murder capital of the country. And I've seen struggle. I've been in struggle. I know the pain of knowing that you could do more, but you're constrained by a system and you're constrained by oppressive states that won't allow you to. And I've always brought that into every workplace I've worked in. Like, you know, you're not going to talk to us this way. You're going to treat us like human beings with dignity and respect. 
And this is from a decade in retail. And I was a wedding photographer for a period of time. And I did graphic design and I and I sold tech solutions to people who were trying to do the, the all-inclusive camera, this, that, and the other stuff that people that was all the rage in like the early 2000s. Like I've had 85 careers, but that was always the common thread that I will fight for people in whatever space I'm in. And for me, it was like, that is the way for a person like me to get into a space and try to burn shit to the ground a little bit. Because I understand as a black man, as a black person, that we don't get opportunities to be in spaces. You know, we have these conversations always like everyone wants a seat at the table. I, I don't want to sit at your table. Hmm. That's a consolation prize as far as I'm concerned. But I want to come to the table and I want to have you hear me. I don't want a seat. I want to be able to come by the table every now and again and say what needs to be said and push for action. So that's why I got into HR originally. I was like, this is a space for me to push in the action. But there was no way I could do that work without acknowledging all the oppression that I faced being a Black person in America, watching my parents struggle, watching my mother fight as a Black woman for basic needs and rights and necessities, and watching her as a Black woman work like three jobs at one point and was the manager in all three of these roles and the way some of these white people would treat her. And I realized that there was no way I could be in HR without also being a black person. Because often when people say, oh, you're going to HR, you just want to tow the company line. I have no allegiance to anyone's organization. I never have, I never will. I'm about people. And for me, HR is about the human and less about the resources. And that was the only way I could do this work was to bring anti-racism, equity, and inclusion into the space because those things have to be core components of looking at a system, analyzing a system, and dismantling and rebuilding a system because that's the other way I view HR. That's, that's what kind of what painted my whole career in HR is every place I've worked, I've always pushed for us to be better. Even if we're 2% better than we were last year, that's 2% better than we've been for 60, 70, 80, 100, 400 <laughs> People don't realize 2% is big, but I'm also one person in these systems. And I often find myself because I am an HR person who lives and embodies equity and inclusion, anti-racism, and dismantling oppressive states. I have often found myself at loggerheads with the concept in the industry of HR. Because if you understand the history of HR and the reason HR exists, it was created to hold you to stop unionizing from happening. HR was never meant to actually help anybody. And I know there's going to be some HR folks to hear this and be like, Farrell, you are wrong. I help people every day. Do you really? Do you really help people every day? Like, let's be real honest with ourselves about if you're in HR, do you legitimately truly shape lives and help people? every day because this industry wasn't built for that like i'm one of those weirdos with a degree in hr <laughs> like you know i got it because i was like i'm doing it anyway they might as well pay me um because once you get the degree they give you some extra money that i can kindly take their white money and go do black shit with it and that's literally how i feel about it uh, <laughs> but 
the industry was never built to help people. It was built to help corporations stop people from revolting. And here we are in 2021, and it's still that. They put some makeup on it. You know, they, they've dressed it up for a night on the town. It's got its best suit on. But it's still. And, and when I say all that, I mean it from the most androgynous space possible. But it's still meant to support companies and not people. You know, we talk about all the things HR can do, but HR is built and it works and the system works the way it's supposed to work. It's meant not to help. It's meant to support companies' goals and needs before anything else. And I've spent my whole career subverting that. It's been interesting, that's for sure. You see a lot of people get angry with you. You see a lot of HR folks not want to associate just their, some, themselves with you because you make them uncomfortable because you're bringing in things, you're talking about concepts that they don't want to talk about. And a lot of HR folks also get uncomfortable because this is also an industry where you don't have to learn anything new. The problem with HR is that HR has innovated anything in like 50 years. HR has been the same and they teach it the same way. They still teach it the same way they taught it to me 15 years ago. It's still HR. Yeah, people operations and all these fun, cute names like your HR. Quit trying to be shady. Your HR. I don't care about the title. Like your HR. We know what you do. So for me, I, I've always found my I found myself completely at loggerheads with HR because I make HR people uncomfortable. Yeah, you've kind of jumped right into it. And I wanted to call back to something that you shared on LinkedIn a little bit ago, right? You shared that you were told that the white people with power and positionality at your place of work were scared of you, right? You were told that you made them feel uncomfortable because you talked openly about racism, oppression, white supremacy, and dismantling hatred and oppression in the workplace and our communities without baby gloves, right? HR doesn't typically do that. You're no longer working there. It's something that you've battled for ever, as long as you've been in this industry. Um, I'm just going to leave it there and let you continue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I, I will touch on that completely. Like I always know that as soon as I'm talking about these things and white people realize it's them too, I'm the enemy. Like, it, it's fine if I'm talking about it in a way where you feel like I'm not talking about you. And I'm never actually talking about you. The thing is, if I say, I understand you're scared of me because I talk about things that make you uncomfortable. That's you. That's not me. <laughs> and the problem with being in HR and talking about these things is that, you know, the HR folks, they walk around with this, everybody hates HR mindset. We're like a couple folks, everybody hates HR. You know, I've been doing this for about eight years now, and I firmly understand why people don't like HR, because I work in HR. And if I were, if I had to deal with some of the folks I deal with in HR, I'd dislike us too. Like, when you go to someone who's supposed to be there to support you if someone's harming you, harassing you, oppressing you, if saying and doing racist things to you, and they basically tell you we're going to do an investigation and they interrogate you and basically ask you questions like, 
but what did you do where they would decide to be racist to you? What did you do where you must have done something? Why would they be sexist to you? The amount of gaslighting and oppression and white supremacy upholding that's in the field of HR is dangerous. And that is connected to the folks in leadership and management roles as well, because that's what they want. A lot of organizations are still very white supremacist, workplace culture oriented. And people like me can't exist in those spaces unless we decide to just assimilate and be quiet and just take on trauma the whole time. So I firmly understand that when I go into these spaces, I'm on a clock. The goal is to see how long they're going to let me stay. Because you can't talk as much shit as I talk and expect to stay employed or to not always be kind of looking for a role elsewhere. And I know when people are scared of me and I know why they're scared of me. And that instance wasn't the first time I've dealt with that. There are HR folks in Oregon who are definitely afraid of me and the concept of me. I've done work with Oregon's local chapter of the HR Management Association. Those folks were afraid of me the whole six months I worked with them. Like, definitely afraid of me. Did not want to have a conversation with me. Got increasingly more racist and gaslighty as our time together went on. And our time ended with them basically saying that they were going to bring in another Black person to police me and to teach me how to talk to white people, basically. And that the role that I had with them, I would, you know, I I would just kind of do some of it while this other Black person was mentoring me Hmm. because they liked their style of not holding them accountable in the same ways or in a nicer way, more than they liked mine, because I made them sit with discomfort. So I'm very used to being in this field, in this profession, and having white people be definitely afraid of me and try to find ways to silence me or make me conform. And it all comes from fear. It's a fear of dealing with their own shit. It's a fear of learning. It's a fear of growing and evolving. And it's a fear of having to basically own some responsibility and accountability for your actions. Like, we're all in these racist systems. You can't say that you aren't a part of a racist system. And therefore, you can't say that you probably haven't done or said something that gaslit someone, oppressed someone, harmed someone. And especially from the lens of HR, like our job is harm mitigation that causes harm. There's so much swirling in me. And for listeners, I made a lot of faces <laughs> that people cannot hear as Farrell was sharing, as you were sharing your experiences, because there's just so much harm that you've had to take on and hold yourself being in the HR field. And I think that you're really speaking my language because I have so many gripes with HR and especially with how diversity, equity, inclusion nowadays are really lumped into the HR function. And I feel like that is a huge organizational functional mistake in a lot of ways, partly because as you are saying, HR is so much about compliance, protecting the company, protecting the people at the top of the company, protecting status quo and maintaining power as it exists. So 
having been in HR and having done the work and you in a lot of ways saying you wanted to subvert from within the system of HR, right? Like what is your take on HR now? Like, do you think it needs to be burned to the ground and completely re-envisioned? Or do you think that there are, you know, ways to shift or change within the system? Like what is your reimagining of what HR can be and can do given that you know, at least for the three of us on this podcast conversation, like we're all about equity and justice, right? Like, so how would you re-envision HR? Well, HR has multiple problems that are root cause of so many symptoms of what happens in our workplaces. Like, first and foremost, HR is pretty much white women. Like, it's something we don't like to talk about. I think the last thing I read, something along the lines of like, HR was like 87% white. And that was like 93% white women. So we're not even talking about white men in HR, really. There's white men in HR, of course, because it's a very white industry. And if there is a dangerous space in HR, is that there are way too many white women in HR. And someone's going to hear this and they're going to be like, that Farrell is a mean person. How dare he call me out? I'm doing my best. The problem and is that white women, and we've seen this in our national elections for the last 10 years, white women support oppressive patriarchal causes. And there is nothing more oppressive and patriarchal in the workplace than leadership and compliance. And white women are kind of the gatekeepers of HR. Like, I can't think of the last organization I worked for that my boss wasn't a white woman, that my supervisor or the director of HR wasn't a white woman. There's a lot of power in that management space run by white women who aren't doing their own work. And and that's at the core of a lot of the issues in HR. When you have an industry that's so white, that has been around for so long, yet has so little overall diversity. And I'm using the word diversity in the proper terms because we have old yellow, the word diversity, and that whole thing needs to go out back and be shot because they have killed that poor word. It means almost nothing now. But if we're talking about the legitimate concept of diversity, we're talking about not only diversity of race, we're talking about diversity of ethno-cultural heritage. We're talking about diversity of mental or physical disability. We're talking about diversity of age. We're talking about diversity of experience, SES. We're talking about a full diversity spectrum. HR is one of those industries that has not seen that shift. There are many other industries that, yeah, they're still kind of predominantly white. But we've seen more of a shift. HR hasn't seen those changes. I live in Oregon, and Oregon's white. We, we ain't even got to go down the path to talk about Oregon being white. I find myself being like one of the only people of color in this space, legitimately one of the only Black people in this space when it comes to this kind of work, when it comes to HR. And that's a problem with HR, and that's nationally. That's not just in my state. That's nationally. HR hasn't seen the shifts that other industries of leadership and management have seen. HR is still very white. And the problem with it being very white is that it goes back to something I was saying earlier, where there's 
there's no real further training you have to get in HR. Once you're in HR, you're just in HR. Yeah, you can go get a certification, but HR is HR. They teach it. And most HR folks, the only training they take every year is they go to a legal update. Because they, they know the industry doesn't innovate. The industry doesn't force people to think outside of the box. The industry doesn't evolve. It hasn't evolved. But this is because it's kind of a pillar of whiteness and white supremacist workplaces. That has to change. There has to be more people like me in HR. There have to be more different experiences and ideas in HR, period. HR is stuck. And it doesn't have to be stuck. One of the things that they did to try to unstick HR was something you were just talking about, Connie. The EDI is under HR. That was the most dangerous thing they could have done because now you've locked it behind the wall of compliance. And compliance is one of the most racist things. <laughs> compliance is supremely oppressive. You can't give the compliance police the evolving thing when they don't need to evolve. Like equity and inclusion have to be separate from HR. But this does not mean that HR folks don't need to do their own work and understand it because you need HR's help because HR understands law. A decent HR person, I will use that word, a decent HR person worth the salt and the amount of money you're paying them will understand your local and federal labor law. They will understand how contracts and union agreements work and they will go out of their way to figure out how all of that can be run through a lens of equity while they're doing their own work to continue evolving as an equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist and anti-oppressive person. They will not be perfect, but you will know that they are trying their damnedest to be better. That's what the industry needs. It needs less of the way we teach HR and more of the humanity that takes place every day. Like I learned a whole bunch of random theories and crap while getting a degree in HR. I have not used not one of them damn theories in all the years I've been doing HR because they're not human theories. They're, these are possible best case scenarios, but human beings are a mess. You are never going to have the best case scenario. Human beings are a mess. And when you add in racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, ableism, ageism, hate based on religion, like people bring all their mess to work with them. So HR has to be more than just compliance. HR as an industry has to evolve to be about human beings, but understanding human nature, but understanding human psychology, but understanding family systems dynamics, because work is a messy family system dynamic. Teams are a dysfunctional family, and I have learned that my understanding of those things has helped me exponentially in helping teams get over hurdles and overcome systems and situations. But that's because I did that work. For me, I've always looked at HR as this has to evolve. I have to constantly evolve. I have to be doing my own work. Nine out of 10 HR folks ain't doing their own work. But you don't have to when it's an industry that's catered to you. When it's an industry that's catered to whiteness and you are at the center of that whiteness, you don't have to evolve. And that is why the industry is so stuck. We, we have to get it unstuck and it has to be way less white in order for us to do it. And, it has, and let me just state that I say that 
it's white and I say white women. And let me also place white femmes and white queer identities in that space as well, because there is something about upholding that patriarchy while having power and positionality that is an unspoken appeal to a particular segment of whiteness. Those are the folks who end up in a lot of those peripheral power positions. They end up at the seat at the table. We need them to do their work. We can't do this, I'm a feminist thing anymore. Where I'm a white feminist. Yeah, you're a white feminist. What about everyone else? We need intersectional feminism in HR. We need actual anti-racist and anti-oppressive mindsets and practices in HR. And it needs to be taught from the beginning. Like we need to even evolve how we're teaching this in college. If you're going to get a degree in human resources management, like when I went and got my degree, I took human psychology class and things that nature because I wanted to. They were not a part of my degree. They weren't even electives. The fact that we're not even preparing people to understand people, but your job is people is dangerous unto itself. So that's what I'll say about that. Yeah. With that, right, when we're talking about reforming an industry, right, a job class, a lot of what I heard you say is like, it's individuals having to do their own work, work through their own shit. And one of the things that I'm constantly struggling with is like, yes, but how is that scalable, right? And like the 2% is better, right? If, you know, the person who, the white HR professional who is listening to this is like, you know, you're right. I need to make some changes. I'm going to do this work for myself. Like that's 2% better, right? And then there are all the people who aren't listening to this, right? <laughs> who who are still like, um, you know, going about their day. And I know there's, there's this sense of urgency that I'm always fighting. Like, we people are actively being harmed now in our organizations by these systems. Like, what is the thing that we need to do to change? In some ways, I realize I'm asking you for like, what's the silver bullet that's going to change it all? But like, you know, is there are there specific practices, tools, methods that you've seen be effective when engaging with folks who are white holding these positions? Yeah, I can speak on that a little bit. For years, I've I've trained HR people. Um, I found myself in, in the weird space with power and positionality to have the opportunity to train HR folks on real shit. And the issue, the issue that I've always found is that it's fine if we're talking about it in a space and you learn something and you might do your own learning afterwards. Because the goal of getting people set up to begin doing this work is to give them the base to begin their evolution. I really, I really get a lot out of training HR folks on being more equitable, inclusive, understand the humanity and the empathy that's needed in these spaces. But here's the kicker. And this, and this goes to what you were saying, David, like how do we get people to change, to help change the system? White people are supremely scared of saying anything at work. And that's the problem. I don't care if you read Ijeoma Oluo's So You Want to Talk About Race. If you ain't at work speaking up about anything, it didn't matter that you read that damn book. I don't care if you came to a training that I led. If you don't take that back to work with you and change your systems. See, we, we always talk about this stuff as 
we need to change the collective system. And we do. But we can't change that if individuals don't want to change it. Because I've seen systems where it's like we added these new things and now the system's different. Technically, it's different. But you still got the same crappy people. They didn't change. The, often we look at like, how can we change the whole, what is the one or two things we can do to change the whole system? And then we're good. But if you still have the same crappy components running the ship, you're still going to have the same problems. It's just now we get to say that we did a thing. Look, we did that anti-racism thing y'all asked for. Yeah, but we didn't get rid of any of the horrible people who were harming people. And that's what HR has to be willing to do. Like, you have to do your own work. And for white people, they and even for people of color who have a great deal of privilege and power, who have lived a pretty, a pretty decent existence where they haven't had to face racism in some of the ways that other folks have. If you're in a field like HR, you can't just read a book and go to a training. You have to apply what you're learning. You have to be that voice in that meeting. Like I've sat in meetings where I've had to disrupt people doing sexist and racist things. And I say it out loud. Like one example, I was in a meeting where it was a recruiting meeting many moons ago. And someone literally brought up, I need to hire people who are other than white. And someone literally jumped in and chimed in and said, well, you know, we hired a lot of Asians last year. So I think we're good on that. Now I'm in a room with a whole bunch of people. They're all quiet. I'm like, oh, no, no. We're not just going to move on from that statement. Like, excuse me, what do you mean by that? Please break that down because that was racist. So please break that down. What were you saying? What did you mean when you said that? It was like a huge, big old thing after that. They literally went to my boss and told my boss to reprimand me for, bringing, for, for calling that out in a meeting. My boss is like, no, I'm not going to reprimand him for that. You shouldn't have said that. They were irate. But my boss is willing to back me. But she was only willing to back me after working for her for a couple of years and finally getting to her own work and her own realization. Her doing her own work helped her support me in doing my work. So HR was a united front in talking about anti-oppressive states and calling out racism and sexism and homophobia. Like, but I didn't have to be the only person doing the work. Other people in my department also were doing their work. That was the most progressive HR team I've, I've worked on to this day because we were all doing our work. One or two of us in HR doing our work doesn't change HR. The whole HR department or 70% of the HR department doing its work changes the system. Because now we've created a, point, a period and a point where we're not letting stuff slide. We're emboldened. We're passionate about what we're doing. And we're not going to sit in spaces and uphold oppression. And we're also going to hold ourselves accountable for those moments where we do end up being just HR folks and we do something oppressive. And we, make atone, and we atone for that. That's the other part of changing systems too, is people are so scared of that responsibility and that accountability. You have to be accountable for the things you say or do because you have to model that the whole department, the whole team 
has to be accountable for the things they say and do. But these things are easier said than done when you're in a white supremacist workplace culture. And, and we still have, I still to this day have folks who will drop me a line after a meeting and be like, way after a meeting, white folks and be like, you know, I'm so sorry they said that. It's like you sending me a message now doesn't change the system. You have to speak up when it happens. You but there's so much in whiteness that's so scared of being excluded from the group. If you speak up, if you call in, if you call out, white people won't want to talk to you. And let me just say, white people not talking to you ain't the worst thing that's gonna ever happen to you. Like a whole lot of white people don't talk to me. My days go pretty okay. I, I don't I haven't lost no sleep over it. I don't feel pain from having five or 10 less white people I gotta talk to every day. And I'm sure if white people got to that point, they'd realize that too. Because part of being a part of that in crowd and part of being accepted is connected to that fear. It's connected to that fear of accountability. So if I hold you accountable, then I have to hold myself accountable too. And that's, what, that's the only way to change an industry like HR, that there have to be a critical mass of HR folks who are constantly evolving doing their work. It can't be just you went to one training this year and you have to get everyone else on board with you. Your HR team, your, your, your team has to be doing the work too because individual work builds the collective work. We can't build a collective and have everybody else run around like chickens with their heads cut off because we're not on the same page. I'm not trying to work toward the same thing. Yeah, I what I'm thinking about, and I love that you bring in the inner week, I call it the inner work, right? Where individuals have to do their own inner work. And then the outer work is really thinking about the culture and the systems and that these two actually have to happen together simultaneously and in tandem with each other. But interestingly enough in organizations and diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it's usually always only looking at the systems or the culture level. And sometimes that's really frustrating to me because at the end of the day, like you were saying, right, the people are the ones who are holding up that culture. The people are the ones writing the policies. The people are the ones who are implementing whatever changes in the systems have taken place. So I, I do think that within diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's so much of a focus on the system, which is really important, right? Like, I think that's where we need to, that's a level we need to work at, but we can't actually get there without doing the individual inner work. So I love that you bring that in, in the context of HR. And I do think that there is so much individual inner work that HR professionals need to do, and as do all of us. We are running up against time. So David, do you have any other questions before we kind of go into our closing questions for the episode? I just wanted to tag on in maybe like a bite-sized way, like policy is only as good as the people who are upholding them, right? And to do that work is, I don't know that like you can make that somebody's job requirement like, you know, you the other the thing that you posted today on LinkedIn, right, was like other duties to be assigned later, right? Like sometimes people don't sign up for this, right? Like, hey, I'm just trying to like hire people and give them their benefits package and like go home, clock out, go about my day. Yeah, I, I that's what I'm wrestling with, kind of with all of this work, whether it's healing justice or restorative justice from Connie and my perspectives, anti-racism. You can't require people to do this inner work. No, but what I will say is that companies have required certain people, usually underrepresented groups or marginalized folks, 
to do quote unquote inner work because of like the way they speak or because of the way they relate to others. Right. Like, but it's usually not for people in the dominant group, usually white males where they don't have to do this inner work. Right. So yes and no on that. Like it's not required or expected, but companies have a way of manipulating it still where I've seen people still have to kind of go to social emotional training because they're, they're coming off as scary, right? Like they're coming off as threatening to people within this dominant status quo. Right. So yeah, uh, a lot to say with and think about and Pharaoh, do you want to add anything before we jump into closing? Yeah. The one thing I'll add to that is that is an argument that is happening in thousands of organizations across the United States right now, what you just touched on. Well, I didn't sign up for this. That is because companies and, and Connie, you touched on it. Mm -hmm. It's fine to send a Black woman to charm school or etiquette training to fit in the whiteness and to make white people comfortable. It is not fine to ask white people to be uncomfortable. Somehow that's somehow against the law. It's wrong. It's illegal. Like, your company has to be willing to ride or die. Like, the company itself has to be like, this is what we're doing now. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine, but you can't be here. And that's the line that no one's ever willing to go to. I've been preaching about that line for almost a decade now. Let Bob from accounting go. He races. Why Bobby we letting Bob hang out? Bob shouldn't get to retire from your company with full benefits after harming people for 20 years. What is that? Like, like that it should be understood anyway that we need to treat each other with some kind of humanity dignity and empathy. This shouldn't even be a conversation. What we're talking about is you should not harm people when you're at work. And I'm asking you to do some work on yourself so you don't harm others. That should have to be another duty to assign if companies build that into who they are and codify that into who they want to be in the future. That comes down to the company. If the company is not going to back making it, this is what we're doing, then yeah, you can't make anybody do anything. I can surely help you find the door and leave. There's doors all over the building here. You can go out the side one if you want to, if that's closer to your car. And then let me help you put your stuff in your desk in your box. Because I, for one, don't want to work with a bunch of racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, hateful people. And I've spent most of my life working with all those folks. And I marvel at how willing companies are to back away from taking a stance and being like, we can't accept that here. The the lingering thought I have with that one is like, you, you kept saying like, the company has to decide, the company has to decide, the company has to decide, like, the company is people, right? The company is a decision maker or a group of decision makers who, in my experience, often don't want that inconvenience. And this is why we're at where <laughs> and we're that's at. Where, and that's where, yeah, that's exactly where, where we are right now. Man, one of our closing questions is, like, is there anything that, like, you feel that we've left unsaid? We've said a lot, but is there anything that you want to make sure that folks in the DEI world know? Yeah. Um, let me just say that I do call myself a quote-unquote HR professional. I firmly believe that HR folks can be better. The challenge is they want to be. I don't think HR is lost. I think HR is working the way it was designed. I think maybe it's time for us to think about some new damn designs. This HR obviously doesn't work in today's context. 
in today's world with the way HR is structured. But that doesn't mean it has to stay that way. I know many HR folks who are doing different, but we are still a minority. We are still a small fish in a gigantic ocean of HR folks. We need more than like 3% of us doing this work and talking about this this way. And maybe the next generation will be better. But the current generation of HR folks, we're not lost. I don't consider them a lost cause, but I do think it's time to step the hell up. Well, y'all heard it here from Pharaoh. We're all going to rise to the challenge. So I, well, I don't want to say, I think I know what you're going to say with our next question, but one of our next questions is asking what you think in terms of whether D&I is revolution or reform. I think it's somewhere in between. And that's not a cop-out. And I'll explain why I think it's somewhere in between. And I was just, and it's funny because I was just talking to my wife about this this morning. And I was talking with a colleague about this yesterday. You need to have people inside these systems and these institutions who are doing their own work and who are pushing the work of equity and inclusion and legitimate diversity in these spaces to rebuild policy, to rebuild concepts, to rebuild cultural structures and organizations. But you also need the folks outside kicking on the door, yelling, making it public, making it known pushing for that action from the outside. You need to have both of those. And that's why I think it's both. I think on the inside, it's reform because those systems need to be reformed badly. We're all working in really messy systems and they all need to be reimagined, reformed, rebuilt. But on the outside, we need that revolution to keep going. There's a reason people have been protesting for hundreds of years. There's a reason that people take to the streets to make their voices known to push for accountability and action. And there's a reason why there are so many wonderful grassroots nonprofit organizations out here doing this work in the streets, making sure that you can't forget about this stuff in any space. Because we often like to talk about work as work is separate from our lives. It's not. If you're going through a divorce, you are bringing your divorce to work with you. Let's be absolutely real here. And if you are a supremely racist person at home, you think you just put that in a box and don't bring it to work with you? Of course that comes to work with you. If you're a supremely sexist person, yeah, that's coming to work with you. So we need people in these systems, in these institutions who are willing to do that work of dismantling it and understanding that there are going to be folks who are going to look at you as an Uncle Tom. There are going to be folks who look at you as not progressive, as you're just a part of the system. And I've heard all of that. But I'm in there because I have a privilege and an opportunity to, to do so. Like They don't want me in there, but I'm there. And I'm talking about it every day. And that's my work on the inside to help those folks on the outside with the revolution push the doors in. Because at some point, I'm going to be able to pull, open up the door and they ain't going to have to kick on it anymore. And that's the thing. It's both. It's reform on the inside, revolution on the outside, and we all working toward a better, a better future. And hopefully, you know, my nieces and nephews won't have to have their parents have the conversation with them at age 10 that society will no longer see you as a child. Maybe they won't have to be pulled over when they're driving around with all their white friends and they're not even the person driving and they're the only person that's made to get out of the car and pat it down. 
maybe they won't have to have a police officer's gun and flashlight pulled out in their face while they went to the 7-Eleven to get toilet paper at 1230 in the morning. Maybe their life will be different. Maybe they don't have to go to work and have that feeling where people tell you that they want to hire the opposite of you to your face. And maybe they won't have to have to go to work and someone comment on their facial hair and say something to them like, well, if you keep changing your facial hair, how are we going to tell you apart from the rest of them? So if I can be inside the system, doing the work to help the folks outside the system open those doors for the next generation, then that's the work. And that's reform and revolution as far as I'm concerned. In in a little bit more of a lighthearted, and it doesn't necessarily have to be lighthearted, we often ask our guests for a DNI confession, right? This is something that you have done in the past or thought or uh, believed in the past that you like are either embarrassed by or like you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to think that. And what you've learned from it, is, is there something that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I, I would probably say before I embraced my queer identity completely, which, you know, you, you think you have and then you realize you have it and that you had your own work to do. I think before I did that, I, I wasn't as cognizant and empathetic when it came to causes for queer people of color. And I can own that. You know, I grew up in a household where there was no shame in that, but I also grew up in a culture and a society where especially for a lot of Black folks. There's a lot of homophobia, transphobia in our communities. And I realized I embodied some of that. And it wasn't the most overt version of that. But when I started looking at my queer identity and how it intersected with my other identities, like I realized that I had let some stuff slide over the years that didn't call a lot of Black folks into account for saying homophobic, transphobic things that I had participated in some of that myself, just laughing and, you know, going along with it. And I can admit that from a space of, I do my own work. And as I did my own work, I realized how much of that I had been a part of. And I say that to say that I'm nowhere near perfect. And I don't think anyone should expect perfection in this work. If you're not constantly learning a new level about yourself, then you're probably doing this a little wrong. Not that there's a right or wrong way to do it, but if you're not having some revelations here and there, your train is a little off the tracks. So that that was a reality check for me. And that's a reality check I had about six, seven years ago. I was like, oh, crap. Like, amount of stuff I just was cool with. Like, the amount of rap songs I would rap along with that just said completely homophobic things. And you don't register it. And you don't think about how, oh, I'm contributing to that by singing along with this and singing with gusto. So it, it made me check myself. It was one of those things that made me check myself regularly going forward because I was like, man, I missed that. And I've been doing that for so many years of my life. And, you know, here I am as a queer identifying person and how easily I did that before coming to terms with how I identified and how that connected and intersected with my own identities, that was real for me. That was really real. And I can talk about that from a real place because that's something I always, I talk with a lot of Black folks about, that if we aren't completely all in on all, for all Black people, then we are being anti-Black. We are being racist. We are being transphobic, homophobic. 
we are not helping. We are doing as much harm as the patriarchal systems we're all part of. Yeah. Yeah, there's always growth. And I think I might have shared for me something that I'm still growing in is this conversation and like to frame it as like just conversation is reductive, right? But disability inclusion, right? And ableism and the ways that, you know, we're still moving today. And like, you know, this podcast does have a transcript that accompanies it, right? And there are still things that I'm posting that are like in not all the way accessible. And like there, there's constant growth um, that that this work requires that we, we all do, right? We can't just say like, you know, I know how to do my job and that's it. Is, it. is there any confession for you, Connie? Yeah, I would plus one both of what you're saying, plus many for myself from a real experience also. And I think what is coming to mind is, and not a lot of people know this, but I will share it because it's in the context of our conversation about HR there was a period in my life where I wanted to become an HR professional. And that was maybe two years ago, I think, which is very recent and no knock on HR professionals. I have good friends who are in HR. And Some they, of my best friends are. <laughs> yeah. They genuinely love people like, and they love their job. And the reason why I wanted to get into HR is because at that time, diversity, equity, inclusion was only done through HR in a lot of companies and organizations. And that was kind of my way in. And, but the requirements are like, you have to be certified. You had to have this many years of experience to do DEI work in HR. I was like, mm, no, I'm not going to get certified next. <laughs> so there was a period in my life where I did want to become an HR, but not because I wanted to be an HR, but because I wanted to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Yeah. So with that, Pharaoh, how can people support you and your work in the ways that you would want to be supported? Yeah. Uh, well, you can always drop by my website, uh, www.pharaohbolding.com. And that's P-H-A-R-O-A-H-B-O-L-D as in David, I-N-G.com. And you can find me, you can find all the trainings that I'm putting together for 2022, including a six-month intensive on helping HR professionals and just folks who are beginning to do this work but don't know where to start, don't have the words and the foundation to know where to start, to not only begin doing their own work, but begin calling this out in their workplaces. Uh, it's called Dismantling Our Own White Supremacy to Dismantle Systems. That's coming up in late middle of next year. And you can sign up for that now. It's a six-month intensive. We we'll also have some, some single training starting in January. Our first one will be Privilege, White Privilege, and the Weapons We Make of Them. Uh, now it's a two and a half hour virtual training. So anyone in the United States can hop online and take that one. And we're going to be really diving in and talking about privilege, white privilege, the differences between the two, the intersections of the two, and how we weaponize them. So if you want to get into some funky stuff to start your year, that happens on January 14th. And we'll probably be doing a follow-up one in a few months after that. But please find me, hit the website. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you type in Farrell Bowden, I'm the only one out there on LinkedIn. So you won't have too, I'm not too hard to find. If you just Google Farrell Bowden, you'll probably find it all anyway. You'll, you'll even find all the things I say. I am the exact person I am at work, at home, online is one Farrell. But yeah, uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to connect with some of your listeners. And thank you for having me, y'all. Appreciate you. And for all y'all, we'll have that linked in the show notes. Thank you so much, Pharaoh, for sharing your wisdom, your stories. So many 
so many gems dropped. We're looking forward to staying in touch. I know we will and all the future connections for um, all of our listeners. Ooh, there were some gems dropped there. Thank you so much again to Pharaoh for sharing your experiences. I know I was really appreciative of you being so vulnerable, sharing just coming off of transitioning out of that job. I am hoping that in this new year, so many more great things are coming for you. For those of you who are HR professionals and want to check out Pharaoh's services and workshops and trainings, please, please check all of those things out. I'm left thinking a lot about some of the things that Pharaoh said, especially as it's this new year. This is our first episode of 2022, and I'm really thinking about the intentions for this year. One of the things that I was really reflecting on as the year drew to a close was about how so many people are going to set equity and justice goals or DEI goals in their organizations. And so many of them, just like many other New Year resolutions, will fail. And I think there are a couple things to interrogate as we navigate those things. One of the things that Pharaoh, Connie, and I talked about is folks just don't want to do the work. There are folks in organizations who are really comfortable with just performing their duties as they have been. And it's going to take leadership in organizations, right? Leadership on teams to throw down the gauntlet and say, these are the expectations of being in this workplace, treating folks with equity, respect, and dignity. And that's going to take some policy shift, but that's also going to take individuals doing the individual work. And so so the invitation for you is to think about the ways that the work needs to be done One of my DEI confessions was thinking about how a lot of the content that comes off of Amplify our day platforms is not totally accessible. And this year I'm committing to changing that. What is something that you are committing to change? How are you going to hold yourself accountable? We'd love to hear from you. Let us know via email or in the comments on social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next time. We'd also love to hear from you. Is DNI revolution or reform? Send us your thoughts and juicy DEI confessions as a voice memo or text to revolutionorreform at gmail.com. Make sure you're subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review and share this with a friend, old school, or you know, with Karen at work. Later, y'all. Bye.